Hey everyone, welcome back to the Saxa Podcast, the first five years. I'm one of your hosts, Agassi Rodriguez, coming at you from Clemson University. Hello everyone, this is Erica Aguiar coming at you from the University of Florida. Hi Agassi, how are you, my sweet friend? I am good, I am doing well. Why are we talking like this? It it felt right, and now it feels wrong. So, hey friend, what up? You know, we're just hanging out. We just had a wedding this weekend up in Boston. Uh, Boston? Of, some Boston, had some fun. Uh, getting used to the accents in the area. I have family who lives up there, so it's always quite a ride um, when you have family that speaks fully in Spanish and also, you know, talks like this. And I'm just like, wow, like this is just so such a like mesh of culture that's like happening in front of me. But it was a great time. Uh, what can about you, you, girl? Can you give me an example of Spanish in a Bostonian accent? Also, if you're no. from Boston, we care for you. Please, this is not, this is just, <laughs> we're not saying anything about your accent. <laughs> Listen, I, I, it's not like it ever happened at the same time, but it, it like, it was just like, I, I can't even do it. I can't even do it. I, it's just, it's so interesting to me. Just again, it just, I, again, us family that speaks Spanish and then they have like this, like, this, like, ma. And then he's like, "Hola, mommy. And then it's like, okay. "More." And I'm like, "It's just like it, I can't, I can't do it justice." Um, well, I apologize to all potential Bostonians who are listening to this episode. Um, yes, I really love that journey. This weekend, I did, I did nothing. It was really great. It rained. I sat on the couch and I watched a lot of TV, and that was it. So, welcome back, everybody. We love that for you. Welcome back to, da, 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 da. I don't know why I'm giving myself a drum roll, the first five years. We're so happy to give you another episode on our podcast for new professionals, graduate students. At this point, you know, it's for everybody. Thanks for being here. Join the fun. Everybody can come here. Um, so as always, our goals with this podcast is to bring you some timely information based off of the calendar year um, and general topics for us to discuss and also to provide a public voice for graduate students and new professionals in higher education and new student affairs. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by, I, I hesitate to call Miles a guest at this point because he's been I here agree. many times. Yeah. But Miles is joining us for our episode today. Hey, Miles. Hello, everyone. Happy day that it is that I won't date for fear of making this seem out of date uh in a time and place that i won't reference i'm excited to uh be here with you in this time i mean you're really opening up your options we could this episode you could think miles is in bora bora who's to say yeah maybe this episode's in the future who's also to say honestly i will say yep. we're gonna talk about the best thing we ate this week so it might um it might date us a little bit but i guess if you don't know us and don't know when we ate these things you would not know. Okay, we've really gone off. Um, before we introduce the episode, we are going to start with what the best thing you ate this week is. Unless I, did I miss something, Agassi? Did I do something wrong here? I did. My favorite is when Erica plays hopscotch with the script. <laughs> she said, we're just going to start with the best that you ate this week <laughs> without talking about the episode first. Okay, Agassi, kick us off since I clearly am all over the place today. Absolutely. So folks, today we're going to start our brand new series. 
titled What If? So with this series, we thought it'd be really fun to just take some time and talk through some critical, um, what's the word, the best way to describe it, some critical moments and critical issues and, you know, themes and topics and student affairs. And just imagine for a moment, what if they were different? Um, and that's the series today that we're going to introduce to you today. We're going to talk about a topic in student affairs, a historical moment in student affairs that kind of evolved around the 1980s, and we'll get into that in just a second. And we'll talk about it through the lens of what if this thing never happened? What would student affairs look like today? If anybody out there is a Marvel fan, you may find some similarity in the sense in the scene that Marvel is also doing a general what if series. For example, what if Captain America was a woman or a person of color? Um, and all these other kind of like general topics of like meshing like moments together. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. So we're excited to talk to you. We think it's going to be a really interesting and cool conversation. It's the first time we do this. So if you have any feedback, please let us know. Um, the chats are open. Back to you, Erica. Okay, now I see where I went wrong. I recognize and I apologize. Um, Y'all, what is the best thing you ate this week? Miles, do you want to start? Yes, I have something to talk about. Um, so as I think people who know me well would know, but, um, you know, as we're speaking outside of my extended friend circle here, really, truly the best thing about living in the state of South Carolina is about six weeks where you get peaches and y'all, I'm just telling you, I've had a couple of spiritual experiences over the last, over the last week. Um, this morning I was standing at my sink eating a peach because you either need a bib or to stand at the sink when you eat, when you eat a peach, that is a good peach. Um, please never buy peaches from the grocery store. Um, I want you to like seek your own happiness, but they're not going to be good. Don't those peaches should not be like credited with real, with like real peach content. Um, if you live in South Carolina, you're buying a peach that was grown in California. There's plenty of wonderful produce that comes from California. It's real the breadbasket of America, truly. But um, those peaches are not going to be good. Please don't buy them. Roadside stands, that's a great move. If you have a local grocery store, make that happen. Really, what I want to say is that my knees buckled this morning while eating a peach. It was um, truly, truly magnificent. And... Um, yeah, that's all that that's all that I'll say. I'm honestly getting kind of emotional talking about it. Um, I feel like honestly, the segment existed for this moment in time for me to talk about peaches. Um, if you haven't had a really good peach, um, I'm so sorry, and I will fix that for you. So uh, please find me on my very active Twitter account. Send me an email. I want to talk to you about peaches. I want to make this happen for you. We all deserve to live in a world where you've had a peach that tastes as good. And I, and I want to make that happen for you. So yeah, it's the best thing I ate this week. Thank you for everyone for your time. Um, and, um, best wishes. I, I love peaches and I will be fully transparent with you that I don't think I've had a South Carolina peach. I am rethinking everything about who I am as a person. And I hope one day to try a South Carolina peach because never have my knees buckled. So um, there's that. Agassi, what's the best thing you ate this week? 
I'm still reeling from the knee buckling. I, I'm honestly just like recensoring myself after hearing Miles talk about a peach buckling his knees. But we're going to try to progress forward. So the best thing that I ate this week. Um, so we had, so, I mean, obviously I just mentioned, I kind of flown from a wedding, um, had some general food in the Boston area. Um, nothing I think that would, I would claim as my favorite meal, but on the drive back from the airport in Charlotte, we did stop at a Thai restaurant that we do enjoy. And I did have some delicious, um, drunken noodles as well as some Tom Yum soup and Tom Yum soup is one of my favorite soups in the world. It is a lemongrass based um like citrusy kind of like sweet sour soup it is delicious i love it so much that is one of the things i ate i think i've mentioned on this podcast before my general love of soups um i find soups to be comforting and an entire meal so uh yeah erica back to you my answer is gonna be so lame um so this past weekend i really wanted to make madeleines which are really delicate cookies they look like shells kind of they're like wavy. Um, and I was like, I'm going to try to make this. I found a great recipe from Bon Appetit, but you have to have a certain kind of pan to make them. I don't have a Madeline pan or mold. So I just made them in a cupcake tin um, or a muffin tin. And they were so good. They've got a little bit of orange zest to them. And then as I ate a few, I just realized that I made cupcakes with no icing. Um, they were still really good, but I had started calling them mini Madeline muffins. And then I just realized that they're naked cupcakes. So they're great. And I think they're definitely the best thing I ate this week, perhaps the best thing I made this week, but I think it is a disservice to the baking community to call them a Madeline. There you go. Do you ever like say something or like really dream of like, I wish this were a thing in the world and I, wow, like someone should really invent this thing and people are like, you know, that thing exists, right? It's like the time that I once said, I wish there was a thing that could wash like delicate items instead of having to wash them. And someone said, yeah, it's called washing things by hand in the sink. And I was like, okay, that's not the same thing. That's not what I was going for here. Um, but I feel like your reinvention, <laughs> your rebranding of muffins uh, is quite a favorite. It was a reach. I really wanted it to be something. I thought I had revolutionized. And then the more I like ate it, I was like, this is just a cupcake. Nothing more. A good cupcake. But not not what not what I set out for. So um thank you all for sharing your food journeys. Um we did not disclose a date, but I will disclose a roundabout time and that it's a little bit before lunch. And so as always, this question leaves me hungry. Um, so we're going to jump in. So our kind of general question is, what does it mean for student affairs to be gendered? And really, what does it mean? You know, what if student affairs had never been sort of feminized? And we'll kind of go into what we mean by that. So kind of jumping into what our process was before we kind of pulled this episode together, we wanted to talk a little bit about you know, what are the articles that we looked into? What are some of the information we pulled together? Some of the conversations we had on our end before kind of pulling it all together to um, record this episode. So we wanted to talk about two articles um, mainly, and that's a article by Dr. Hughes in 1989 and a, a co-authored piece by McGowan et al. in 1991 specifically. And these two articles really take, one is a historical look at the feminization of student affairs 
um, kind of starting around the 80s. The other is a qualitative study where they interviewed student affairs and higher education professionals to talk about the effects of this feminization that kind of happened in the 1980s. So as kind of mentioned in the 1980s, um, there was a gender switch that kind of started occurring in student affairs. A lot more women started to become student affairs professionals and started entering into colleges and universities to work as staff members um, in these college student personnel support roles that we eventually came to know as what we call student affairs today. They, in these articles, referred to this process as the feminization of student affairs and in the sense that as more women started to come into student affairs specifically, um, we are talking, of course, about the gender makeup, but the feminization aspect is just the qualities of femininity that became in integrated into student affairs and how that was viewed outwardly by not just other individuals in student affairs, but even just like contemporarily, like outside of the realm of higher education um, and what it became known as. So as a team, we pulled together, we discussed these articles. It felt like a nice little grad school conversation. We sat around and we talked about our thoughts and feelings about these articles. And then we started to think, what if the field of student affairs had avoided becoming a gendered field starting in the 80s and it wasn't viewed as this increasingly feminized um, field or profession specifically? We wanted to talk about this because we feel as though the effects of that gendering are still present in what our field looks like today. So we wanted to just take a moment and just provide a general roadmap of what our discussion was going to be like for this episode. And again, we'll talk about our terms and definitions and all that, but wanted to take a step back and talk about how we came to this discussion in the first place. So I'll provide a uh... A definite, like a working definition that um, is as succinct as possible to talk about what we mean when we say that student affairs is a gendered profession. So, I'm gonna provide a couple of quotes from that um, McEwen et al. article from 1991. Um, as a reminder, that was a qualitative study uh, where folks were reflecting on, I sort of uh, described it when we were reading it as a uh, a post-feminization look. So uh, I think that Hughes in 1989 was very much sort of in the midst of while uh, the gender uh, identification of the field was changing. And then McEwen was more a reflection on what that meant. And so the respondents there, uh, and this is a, a quote from that, uh, respondents expressed concern about how student affairs may be seen by others, both went within and outside the institution, especially with increasing numbers of women. And two things that they expressed as specific concerns were that the credibility of the work would be diminished and that student affairs would be professionals would be discriminated against in salary levels. So these adverse outcomes are empirically true of other professions that have been gendered as predominantly female identifying. You can think of nursing and teaching, I think, as two very prominent examples um, that uh, at some point were deemed to be uh, sort of support services in the overall endeavor of education and or medicine. Um, and so Hughes and McEwen et al. were speculating about whether this same kind of these outcomes about diminished credibility, uh, about being a, seen as a support service towards sort of the, uh, the like male adult work um, and then discrimination against in salary levels, whether that sort of stuff would happen in student affairs. So we will proceed from here as if this did happen in student affairs, that namely because student affairs became a predominantly female identifying profession, it is deemed as a supporting service in higher education and thus not seen as, cre as credible 
and is worthy of influence within the overall uh, work of the academy. So that's how that's how we're defining student affairs as a gendered profession. And one thing to note, um, so we're using a lot of the language that was used in these articles, um, and we are not making a connection between masculinity and men and femininity and women. Those are separate things here. Um, the articles obviously mention a lot of connection there, but um, we certainly know that trans folks have existed in student affairs since this time and continue to. Um, so that's that's not where we're going with this. Um, we recognize that gender is not a binary and that folks can and do display varying levels of masculine and, masculine and feminine traits or masculinity and femininity. But we are really talking specific, ooh, words, specifically about masculine traits and feminine traits in this. Um, so we just wanted to sort of provide that um, context on the way that we're proceeding. So here's our first sort of question. What if misogyny hadn't really feminized student affairs within higher education? Um, so the first thing that I sort of think about is that we would be resourced, right? That we would be valued at institutions in similar fashions as academics are, or as, you know, higher level administrators, because many of us feel like we are looked at as this sort of support staff um, or as this sort of additional. So one of the things that Hughes mentions is student affairs is viewed as a service providing profession rather than a central educational dimension in the academy. And it's so interesting because for many of us, we know that we are pretty central to student success, to the way that students are experiencing the college or university and experiencing this growth. Um, and I think, you know, if, if this hadn't happened, one of the things that comes to mind for me is that we would be included in decision-making. And I know that a lot of institutions, student affairs is included in some, but I do think that if we had not sort of been affected by this misogyny, student affairs would really be significant, that it would not be, we need to think about student affairs and we should get their input, but that automatically we are in that conversation and that we're not looked at as like the fun department. We're looked at as, as really having a significant sort of impact. And, you know, I think there would be a huge connection between education and co-curriculars, but Agus is going to talk about that a little bit. So I don't want to take that. Um, and I want to focus really specifically on when we talk about resourced, we would be a well-resourced. Um, I think we'd be paid better. I think we would be valued monetarily and that would, that would reflect in all of our levels. Um, I think we'd be valued, connected to our mission. Uh, you know, Hughes also mentions a quote, it's, it's not on their own, it's from, I might butcher this last name, Pfeffer and Davis Blake, but it says, work done by women is less valuable and can be paid less than work done by men. Just flat out, that is, that is what they sort of hypothesize. And as this feminization has happened, yes, we are looked at as, at, as the same as high-level admin faculty because we are this additional thing. We are not significant to the university's measure. And so I think about, you know, if we think about board of trustees or board of regents and how sometimes student affairs is brought in to talk about one thing, but is not significant to their mission and is not significant to deciding the path of the universities, even though I think many of us would really believe that that's like our, our role. Um, and the amount of women in this, or, you know, again, women or folks who identify as women, 
we're just not looked at with a lot of, I'm doing a hand motion and I, I really mean, I don't know what I mean by this hand motion, but wait, thank you, Agassi. We're not given a lot of weight in university decisions, I think. And, um, you know, I'll leave you with this and then Miles is going to talk a little bit more, but, you know, Hughes mentions that feminine was believed to have little to do with serious world matters. And I would ask you to think about any of our interactions with students and tell me that they're not as serious, if not more so than what's happening in the classroom. I don't think you can find many of us who would say we don't have a serious impact. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, it, it is pretty counterintuitive that the the purview of student affairs is basically the 90% of time that people spend outside of the classroom. And yet um, it's not thought of as being like, an, you know, the support of students in the time that they spend outside of the classroom is not seen of uh, in equal value. And I think that, you know, you have to ask the question about why that is. And that's sort of what we're doing here. So to sort of make our next point here. So what if misogyny hadn't been feminized? Uh, hadn't feminized student affairs within higher education. I think that supervision and in, in student affairs would be would be improved. Um, so I need to say that although we all know this from practice, um, that there is a lot of information out there to say that supervision is is probably the most important thing for the success of student affairs professionals. And so um, Hughes identified something really fascinating in their study. So they sh shared that. Supervisors are affirmed up for mirroring what they identify as masculine aligned traits. And as supervisors and colleagues, so as people who are supporting st staff and being direct peers, folks respond better to feminine aligned traits. Um, again, as Erica mentioned, this article was published before many new professionals in this field were even born, and the idea of, of gender specific traits is regressive. You know, we've, I, I want to say that one more time. So we know that and value that point. Um, but also, uh, they're not even but. And also, this this disparity may help explain issues that we have with supervision and student affairs. So if student affairs hadn't been gendered, then we wouldn't have to worry about prioritizing this sort of dualistic thinking. If student affairs was valued as a hub of collaboration and support, um, then we wouldn't have to mirror anything to get legitimacy as supervisors. We would just have it because we are a vital part of, we would have that legitimacy because we're a vital part of the mission and goals of the institution. Um, and, and I think it really cannot be overstated if folks who are supervising it at any level, whether that's supervising student employees, you know, uh, you know, graduate students, teams of many, many full-time staff, taking that burden off of supervisors who are trying to be something that we're not and push that, that burden on to employees and colleagues, I think it would be this tremendous release valve for the entire profession. If we're able to change the way that supervision works in student affairs, um, then we're really changing how people feel supported, how they feel recognized, how they feel, um, you know, how they feel like they're growing and, and prospering at institutions. Um, and so I think that that would be, would be a big effect of uh, how this would change if student affairs wasn't gendered. You know, one thing that Erica alluded to just a second ago is what the out of the classroom experience would look like should if if the this feminization that um, Hughes and McEwen were talking about hadn't occurred. And one of the things we kind of discuss is that we believe that the out of the classroom learning would be central and better understood as an entire component to the student experience in higher education. 
you know, something we often hear and, uh, you know, we hear, I think, from administrators as well is how student affairs professionals support the academic mission or support the institution. But it's always, as we kind of mentioned, the support role. We are secondary in some in some aspects, but we are there to support what is an overall mission. Where in, in reality, as we also just kind of talked about, students are out of the classroom more time than they're in the classroom. And that's not to say that the in-classroom experience is not valuable because of course, at the end of the day, it is students come to higher education to graduate with a degree. But what we are saying rather is that a degree is more than just the time that is spent in the classroom where the classes are taken, it's an overall experience. And we believe that if this feminization hadn't occurred that we wouldn't have to be prove, proving our worth of the things that we provide in the out of the classroom experience, but we could lean into our own expertise. I mean, as we know, many, many entry-level student affairs roles require a master's degree. Like we do have graduate programs, which we attend to learn, to understand theory and how it, it happens in effect. So we have some ground in scholarly work and as to how that is applied in real life. And we believe that if we didn't have to spend time proving our worth sometimes that we could just spend a lot of that time, energy and resources advocating for our own programs for the sake of advocating for our programs. Um, and even those programs that are within academic spaces, because of course we do know the success of programs that are collaborative between student affairs and academic affairs. Um, in the case of like faculties and residents, you know, we understand that there's a lot of programs that integrate both the academic and the co-curricular experience or the extracurricular experience. But we believe that if this feminization hadn't occurred, um, that again, we would spend less time advocating for why it matters that we do them. And I'm, we are definitely not arguing that assessment is not important and that we should understand our impact and that we should have measurable ways of understanding what is going right, what is going not so right, what are the things that we're hoping for. All of that is important, all of that is true. But we also feel as though we are constantly sometimes trying to prove our own worth and that importance sometimes pushes away from our central mission, which is to support our students. Um, because we know very well, some, some things are difficult to assess and some things are difficult to measure, but we know that they are occurring because we see it in our students. And of course this varies across institution type, um, whether you're from a small institution or a large institution, that level of belief and that level of impact might look different. Um, but again, um, sometimes it makes it difficult to be student focused when we're spending a lot of time trying to prove, hey, what we do does matter at the end of the day. Um, and another thing which just feels that academics and student affairs would work more hand in hand. Um, we do think that sometimes it could be, it can be difficult to work collaboratively across and that's not a one side to one side issue. I believe it's, there's a, there's a think of misunderstanding on both ends of the spectrum of the importance of, of, of both sides. And we very much understand that, but we do believe that again, if we're thinking about this feminization as like support role to the institution, we wouldn't be looked at as support. We would be looked at as you are also an integral part and thus we're going to work together. We're both needed. Um, in this situation in order to actually uh, develop holistic, uh, develop students holistically. Okay, so if we're not trying to prove our worth, which Agassi just made a, a compelling case as to how this might be different uh, in this alternate timeline. Um, if we're not trying to prove our worth, and it's, if student affairs is understood as an equal part of the collegiate learning experience, then professionals in this field would be liberated from all sorts of junk that comes with the burden of chasing misogynistic values. One of those things that I know gets talked about a ton, um, and I'm going to quote an article here that was actually referenced um, in the McEwen article, uh, which is O'Neill from 1981, 
said that self de- self-definition, self-respect, and personal worth are primarily established through achievement, success, and confidence on the job. Um, I would like to live in a world where people didn't feel like um, competence on the job is uh, a dependency for people's self-definition, self-respect, and personal worth. Um, And I think that that all really connects to a quote that is directly from McEwen as as well, which I think is really, really important to talk about when we talk about, you know, issues of gender equity. So McEwen said that the the, uh, male identifying respondents in their sample found it difficult to explain to parents, partners, and significant others why, because of the relatively low salaries, men in student affairs often cannot be the sole breadwinners. That is a burden um, that that people bear. And it's one of the reasons why this competence on the job gets so attached, gets so attached to things. And that that again, that junk is just projected onto everybody in this profession. This idea, this like breadwinner sort of um, like broken mirror kind of experience that people have where they're trying to project that back on the worth because that is oftentimes how men are valued uh, in society is really, really problematic. I mean, what we're talking about here is again, like a liberation from all sorts of, of bad, of all sorts of bad stuff. Um, and I think, and I'm going to quote another article that was cited there in McEwen by Olds in 1981. Um, if, student affairs was not gendered, I think that there's a very real possibility if we're getting rid of this pressure, this breadwinner pressure, if we're getting rid of this idea that I think is very much related with that breadwinner pressure, that people's self-respect and personal worth are defined by their job, then we've got the opportunity, as Old said in this article, for folks to be fully human, for folks to enter their work as a part of their life that they get to engage with, but not something that is a dependency in how they feel about themselves and how they feel about the world. And oh, by the way, that would really make people feel uh, feel very differently about their work as well. If you don't have to put all that pressure on it, you just get get to engage with it. Well, oftentimes, student affairs is really, really wonderful stuff. There's so much that is good about this. And I think because a lot of this sort of um, like red winter projecting sort of snowball nastiness, we end up in this situation where people can't remember, oh my gosh, that student note that I got was like unbelievable. I can't believe that I can't believe that I had that sort that sort of impact on somebody's life. Or I did this, you know, I did this step that created a situation where lots of people, whether they knew it was me or not, had the ability to thrive on campus. Or I engaged in this like restorative practice that's walking the university towards equity. And now people have, you know, and now we are closer to people having an equal opportunity to thrive on our campus. You know, all of those things are so meaningful and so powerful. And if we sort of allow ourselves to, to feel fully human, um, then I think that all of those things become more possible on a day-to-day basis. Y'all can't see, but I was like really snapping. Well, you all can see. Our listeners can't see, but yeah, I just really love that point. Thank you, Miles. Um, And so the other thing that I kind of want to talk about is this idea around um, crisis on campus and how if we had not been sort of, is misogynized a word? I'm going to use it as, as it is. If then not only would we be valued, but a byproduct of that is that I think it would limit unnecessary crisis, the sort of proactive involvement of student affairs and decisions. Because one thing that I have always held really kind of close to my heart in student affairs is that a lot of times 
our value is seen when a crisis happens, right? We are the people who know how to handle large moving parts. You know, think about the most recent example being COVID, how many student affairs departments were tasked with the safety plans, were tasked with how are we moving students off campus? How are we getting them safely back on campus? And all of a sudden, student affairs was this, oh my gosh, well, you have the connection to the students. You know about, I hate the term human capital, but you understand that effect and that you're not just looking at numbers. And if we were more valued and if we were not looked at as this air quotes, feminine field that has little to do with anything and is not important and has no value, if we were involved in these things, we could really be more proactive rather than reactive you know, think about what happens, um, unfortunately, when we have a student death, who is the person? It's the, it's the dean of students or someone in a similar role that's handling this. It is that, and it's not just the forward facing, I am sharing this information with students and families or whatever. I mean, the dean of students is calling the friends of students, the professors, they're so intricately involved in this process and, and this is not to dig at, at faculty or anyone, and Agassiz sort of talked about this need to work better together, but we work so closely with students outside of the classroom. We have such a connection to them that goes beyond, I almost think about we see them when they're off. We see them when they're not in student mode and, and they're sort of their holistic selves or whole selves. That if we were, and I think this is maybe like pulling all the stuff together, if we were valued and we had better supervision or kind of had this, this liberation of not putting all this pressure on ourselves and had the, and were compensated well and were just valued as much and were included in all these conversations. Think about how many things we could avoid, how many incidents, and, and please don't conflate this with me saying we could avoid student death because obviously like, I am not trying to make that point, but think of all the times when something happens. I mean, even something as little as like a parking issue or, you know, parking disturb. Think about all the things that we could avoid and how we are so good at what we do that we could really like operationalize and make some things easier. Um, it just, something that comes to my mind is think, you know, all of the, all the good that we do. And I'm trying not to be too like sweet about this. I'm like, we're so good. And we have the biggest hearts, but I think bringing us in and having us at those tables, there's so many questions that we can ask and so many things that we can bring forth that will solve so many problems before they can become problems and solve so many things before they need to be solved in theory. Um, so that's something that kind of sticks in my head is, and I think is a good wrap up is if we were valued or not looked down upon, then I think the universities would be a much better place. And again, let me not get too sweet about that, but that's sort of something that's been kind of rattling around in my brain. Um, so that's what I'm thinking. So to kind of wrap up our discussion, uh, thank you all so much for sharing. Um, we wanted to just talk a little bit about, so what is the point of this discussion? Like why spend some time hypothesizing or wondering or dreaming or thinking about alternative realities or alternative, you know, historical moments and instant affairs. And, you know, we believe as a field that it is critical and even central to the and, uh, NASPA and ACPA professional competencies for us to think about our history and for us to think about the effects that our history has had on us and how those effects are still seen today. As we kind of mentioned 
just a second ago, we believe that the impacts of this gendering of our fields has progressed and has affected our contemporary times today and the way that we are seeing now and the way that we do operate now. Um, so we just wanted to spend some time and think about like, what if that didn't look like that? Um, because, you know, not only is it a fun way for us to like, just think of like, you know, like what if, and that's literally how we came up with this idea. We're like, what if this thing was different? Um, but to, you know, just take a moment and take a step back and wonder like, what are other possibilities for our current world? Um, because of course we continue to live through our world and we make history as we go. So that's, this is not to say that we are stuck in the way that we are and this, there's no way to change it. But for us to think about for a second, as we move forward together, you know, how can things look differently and why things should potentially and actually look differently. Um, we wanted to take a moment to zoom out and to take a broad look at what lies beyond. Um, I say zoom out um, almost as a small pun as we are currently on Zoom at the moment. Um, but again, we just wanted to take a second and reflect and think about like the, the possibilities that exist because we do know that the possibilities exist. And as we mentioned, kind of with our context warning, we understand that like it is not this binary of masculine and feminine and men and women, and there's everything in between and, you know, everybody with all sorts of identities and wanted to, you know, take a moment to think about like, okay, how are things looking differently as we do embrace the multitudes, as we do embrace the differences and the, and the intricacies of the identities and the experiences that we hold in our fields. And with that being said, we would like to thank everybody for taking some time to join us on the first five years presented by Saxa. Thanks for dreaming with us, y'all. That sounds like a really cheesy, like late time, late night radio host. Um, but thanks, Miles, for joining us as our guest and for helping produce this episode. And of course, to my main guy, Agassi, for editing our episodes. Appreciate you, friend. You can find us and more information on SACSA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on all the things, facebook.com backslash SACSA fan page, Twitter at SACSA tweets, Instagram at SACSA grams, and I am on Twitter at Erica M underscore Aguiar. That's Erica with a C, A-G-U-I-A-R. Agassiz, where are you at? You can find me on Twitter at Agassiz, A-G-A-S-S-Y underscore R. What about you, Miles? Where can folks find your peachy content? Um, you can connect with me in numerous ways. I think an electronic mail would probably be the most efficient. Uh, please use 100% recyclable electrons. Uh, you can reach me at surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T, at clemson.edu, although you will see reference to my peach passion on my Twitter bio. So you can, so you can check that out there. I will also like to state um, that I've had a long-term beef with uh, Georgia peaches because there are more peaches grown in South Carolina. Um, but I think Georgia peaches um, are, um, you know, wonderful as well. So Erica, you know, there's, I think there's a variety of options. I think it's really more where you're doing your sourcing from best peaches I've ever had are from Chilton County, Alabama. So um, although I, I don't know if those ever made my knee buckle, my knees buckle. So I'll, I will say that. Can I just ask a quick follow-up? Um, Miles, do you, I know you have a beef with certain peaches. Do you have beef with Justin Bieber? Because he sources his peaches from Georgia. I guess he's so mad because he was going to make the same joke. You can make yours too. We can pick which one and edit the other one out. No, I, you know, I, I, um, 
uh, you know, I wish that everybody would flourish and be happy in their own life and their own journey. Um, and so I wish the best for Justin Bieber, who, by the way, did get married in South Carolina, just as a note. So. The more you know. Thanks again for joining us, folks. Uh, I'm going to wrap up there because Erica Loki took the exact joke that I was going to make about Justin Bieber beaches, but it's okay. We're all friends here. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate all of you. See ya. Bye.